In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today I'm joined by Tamar Hallerman, the Hebrew Haller. I don't know. What was that on Twitter? <laughs> I got a pitch from a PR person earlier this week addressed to Tamar. T-A-M-M-E-R, which I, you know, my name gets butchered a lot. It's Israeli. It's hard. I get it. But but Tamar is a new one. And I posted it on Twitter and I got a lot of MC Hammer jokes. And you know what? I'm okay with Tamar time. Tamar the yeah, Hammer. I like, I like Tamar time, Tamar the Hammer. And it's better than, and I like the Hebrew Tamar. Uh, we've had the Hebrew Hammer, you know, uh, Hank Greenberg. And I think Ryan Braun even got that a little bit too. Um, the two Jewish, two famous Jewish baseball players, but call oh. I'm calling you the Hebrew Tamar. You know, uh, Kevin Riley was in D.C. earlier this week, and, and we were chatting. I really should have brought it up with him, maybe changing my byline in the print edition to Tamar the ha- Hammer Hallerman. <laughs> That's good. Well, Tamar the Hammer is also our Washington correspondent. And as she just mentioned, it was just up with Kevin Riley. You can hear his podcast on the uh, on the uh, wherever you get your your podcast as well. We're talking about his congressional testimony today. We're here to talk about some other recent developments in the Georgia political world. It's about to be July fourth week. It's about to maybe slow down a little bit, but it, it does not feel slow lately. It has been a whirlwind of news. Yeah, no kidding. And and the amount of campaign news too is kind of stunning when you think about it. We're in an odd numbered year. We're, <laughs> we're not even halfway done with it yet. And already we have millions of candidates that we're trying <laughs> to keep track of and, and stay on top of. And, um, you know, between some of these congressional races that last year proved to be very competitive in the Atlanta suburbs to the Georgia Senate race now, which which was kind of slow to start, but but we're starting to see some movement with potentially some other candidates. It's been a real trip. Let's talk about that because we're gonna we're gonna narrow in on the both the seventh district and the and the Senate contest. Um, but you're right. I mean, we've seen races where it doesn't even start to develop until maybe a year out, like late the year before, the November or December of the year before. But in this case, we're not even in July yet. And really by like May of this year, we kind of had the uh, a sense of how crazy it was going to be, but we're not even done yet. I still hear there's some more candidates to get into the seventh district race, but there's already uh, about what nine, ten, and we're not <laughs> talking random. We're not talking random people who are gadflies who always race. These are people who 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 the large majority of them have either run in campaigns before or have financial backing, have some sort of 
name recognition, have have like legitimate campaign operations. These are these are credible candidates who are who are running for the seat. Exactly. The the two of us, we had started kind of an internal document kind of tracking some of these seventh district candidates because we we heard so many names after Rob Whittle announced he was retiring. We eventually just ended up publishing a version of it on our website, you know, kind of who's in the race, who's thinking about it. And right now we have at least 12 names on there and it keeps growing. Thank God we published it just so I can keep track of these people. But it's really astonishing when you think about it, Greg, because the qualifying deadline, you know, the actual deadline to make sure you're in the race is not until March of 2020. <laughs> March. Yeah. And you already have these candidates. You've got a number on the Republican side, a number on the Democrat side. I guess we could focus on the Republican side first because um, we had the news that Senator Renee Unterman formally jumped in the race. We talked about it a little bit uh, on, on the last podcast, but she formally jumped in the race. Um, she's probably the biggest Republican name in that contest because there's a lot of, there's a lot of other candidates who, who are sort of first time newcomers who are trying to build up their name recognition, but have operations incredible and, 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 and strategists behind them who, who know how to do that. But Renee Unterman, a, a, a longtime mayor, um, in Gwinnett County, who is a, a state house member and ran for Senate and has been a, not just a, a state senator, but also like a leader, a very influential leader in the state Senate for a number of years, including the, uh, the chairwoman of the, of the health committee. Um, she's in the race and it really focuses the race a lot on the anti-abortion heartbeat bill. Exactly. And, and if there, there was kind of a favorite going in, I would say it's her. I mean, if, if not only just because of her name recognition, she's been in the state Senate for, gosh, since 2002, 2003, I believe, Greg, something like that. And mm -hmm. and yeah, like you said, you know, she was one of the main architects of this, this heartbeat bill as it made its way through the legislature. And, you know, even though in her initial introductory speech the other day, she was really focusing on other issues. You know, she had a, a physical kitchen table on stage with her to kind of emphasize how she wanted to talk about kitchen table issues like healthcare, you know, the economy, education, issues that that your average family in the 7th district would be thinking about. But it was so clear, you know, <laughs> to everyone including her that abortion was going to be the main issue. Listening to the questions reporters were asking her after she stepped off stage, every single one of them pretty much was about abortion and, you know, she acknowledged that this was a national debate and how she was very much ready to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And she, and a few days later, she showed up at a, um, uh, an anti-abortion groups rally at the, uh, in, uh, in Gwinnett County where they were, uh, this group was promising it would help support candidates who voted for that legislation. And she was one of the marquee speakers there too. And a reminder that these issues are going to go far beyond as, as important as it will be in the seventh district, every legislative race. And we wrote a, we wrote a story about this the other day, but every, a lot of state legislative races, um, even the even the U.S. Senate campaigns, local contests, a lot of it's going to focus on. I'm not saying it will be the main issue or the only issue by any means, but it will be a a center. It will be a, a significant issue in all these races. Exactly, and a lot of the Democratic candidates that we talked to have acknowledged that as well. I think initially, you know, privately, there's a little bit of fear that abortion is going to crowd out some of the other priorities they were hoping to talk about. Um, healthcare and pre-existing conditions were a winning issue for Democrats in 2018. I think there were several candidates that that are still hoping that's going to be the case for for 2020. And you know, at the same time, abortion 
since it's become such a national issue over the last couple of months, um, you know, I think a lot of these candidates realize it's helping them get national attention in this very kind of noisy presidential environment. And not only that, it's helping them fundraise across the country right now. And, and money is going to mean a lot in this very crowded race where we have eight, nine, ten candidates all trying to get a foothold and, and name recognition. And what we haven't seen is the party establishment try to get behind any of these candidates quite yet. Um, but that could change now that Unterman's in the race. Um, she has, it's weird. It's interesting because she was, she was one of Casey Cagle's uh, top lieutenants and did not have the exactly a cozy relationship with governor Kemp or Lieutenant governor Jeff Duncan. One of the first things that happened after Jeff Duncan took office was she got demoted um, and gave a very fiery speech from the floor of the Senate. Um, saying essentially that, you know, you know, publicly apologizing to to Governor Kemp for the harsh words that they exchanged way back when during the heat of last year's campaign, and also venting her frustration about kind of getting sidelined um, in, in, from her from her job as the state as the Senate Health Committee chairwoman. Well, a lot changed over the course of the next three months, and when the heartbeat bill needed a lead sponsor in the Senate after it got a really tough reception in the House when a, a group of mostly men were the were the most forceful advocates for it. Um, the supporters, including Governor Kemp, kind of turned to her to lead the charge. And um, she did. And she got it passed in the Senate um, by a party line vote. There was, there was, there was, it was pretty down, you know, it was pretty much what we expected. There was no high profile defections, um, the one Republican state senator who we figured would vote could vote against it, and later said that she didn't she, she didn't support it, um, was not there for the vote. Um, but it was Renee Unterman who who shepherded through the bill and made some changes to it that that conservatives thought were more palatable and would hold up in court a little bit more better. Yeah, and and everybody remembers the photo that she tweeted out right after the, the bill passed, an, an infamous mm-hmm. photo of her kind of uh, you know acknowledging or you know, thanking all the other people in the state Senate who helped her move the bill. And it's a picture of her standing in front of a table and behind the table, a whole bunch of men, no other, no other women in the picture. Um, one thing I, I do want to point out that's just been kind of interesting, the way that these candidates in the 7th District have been talking about one another and who they're kind of training their fire on has been particularly interesting. Uh, you know, immediately after Unterman formally announced her candidacy, you saw Carolyn Bordeaux, Nabila Islam, you know, two of the top Democrats running for that seat immediately fire off statements um, you know, trashing Unterman for her stance on abortion and, and talking about that. Unterman over the last few weeks, though, at least on her Twitter feed, has been more focused on Lynn Homrick, a Republican yeah. candidate, you know, a first time candidate, Home Depot executive and, um, you know, who seems to be is going to be spending a lot of money to run kind of a David Perdue-esque kind of outsider campaign. Exactly. Um and she's attacked um, Lynn Homrick for not living in the district. Lynn Homrick recently moved into the district, which covers parts of Gwinnett and Forsyth County. But uh, she's lived closer to the Atlanta area. I think it was in, around Buckhead. I think she was technically in the 11th district, if I remember correctly. Um, and so she's kind of casting her as an outsider. Um, and it's interesting, too, to see how other candidates start to react to that, um, because we have several other candidates who have lived in the district forever, right? For their entire, for most of their, their adult lives, if not their entire life. 
too, who who could take on the same argument that saying, "Hey, we're we're the uh, we're the homegrown candidates." We saw how effective or damaging that could have been in the sixth district in 2017 when Republicans relentlessly pummeled John Ossoff for not living in in the sixth district, and he lived a couple miles down down the road um, in Central DeKalb County. Um, but I think. You know, one of one of his uh, uh, maybe uh, he would never say this, but maybe one of the bigger mistakes he made was just not getting an apartment right up the road in, in the sixth district to sort of neutralize that argument. Yeah, and Underman has been calling Homrick on on Twitter that that buckhead lady. <laughs> but there are other candidates, you know, running in the seventh district who also don't really have roots. John Eaves um, also moved into the district in order to run. We have. Um, Joe Prophet, a former Atlanta Falcons running back who challenged Hank Johnson in the fourth district last cycle, who's also running in that race. So this is something I'm expecting we're going to hear a lot of going into to 2020. But one one story I wanted to ask you about, Greg, you had news um, in t- today's Friday um, online today about Sarah Riggs Amico, another 2018 candidate who's who's resurfacing as a potential candidate next year. She's considering a, a challenge to David Perdue. Yeah, and this won't come as much of a surprise um, to anyone following politics uh, in Georgia closely. But she is; she seems very likely to to announce a campaign um, in the next few weeks. Um, there is a big fundraising deadline for the end of end of June, and and July fourth is usually a dead week, so it could be shortly after that. Um, there, there's no you know definite definitive timeline on this, but um, she's certainly getting ready. Um, she's contracted with, uh, she's in negotiations with pollsters, with media firms, with law firms. She's doing all the things you would do to get ready behind the scenes. And she's also doing a lot of the things you'd expect a candidate to do in front of the cameras. Um, I was a couple, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we had all those presidential candidates in town, not only did I see a lot of the presidential candidates, I saw Sarah Riggs Amico everywhere too. Um, she was at... Uh, a Beto O'Rourke's uh, town hall meeting, which there's only like 20 people there um, at the bottom of Old Lady Gang, uh, Soul Food Palace in, in, in Atlanta. Um, so she was one of the people there. She was at the Democratic fundraiser. These are things you expect Teresa Tomlinson, the only other major Democratic candidate to do because she's already out running. Um, but uh, for Sarah Riggs Amico, who's not a, a candidate quite yet, um, this is sort of, I guess you'd call it a testing the waters phase. Yeah, exactly. And that's why you haven't seen a lot of Democratic officials hop into the race yet, kind of declare aside, because I think a lot of people were expecting additional candidates to hop in. One of the other names we keep hearing is is uh, John Ossoff, who ran in the 6th District Special Election in, in 2017. Um so the, this race has been interesting because the field was was stunted earlier this year as Stacey Abrams was kind of making her decision about whether to run for Senate or president or, or governor. She took herself out of the Senate race. And, and I guess we kind of expected more people to hop in more quickly. I mean, and, and Tomlinson kind mm-hmm. of, you know, announced her intent even before Abrams made a final decision and she jumped in immediately. But we, we you know, Sarah Riggs Amico and other potential candidates are, are really taking their time here. It's kind of the opposite of the seventh. We were just talking about how quickly the seventh district has formed and the six next door to it has formed with all these candidates. And meanwhile, we are, you know, uh, the same time frame that that election is also going to be held next November. And we only have one, uh, you know, credible Democratic candidate running and, and no challengers to, to David Perdue, the, 
that 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 are you know higher profile and we expect that not to change but um this field has been slow especially considering last year all the different names and just like you mentioned we had that seven district list that we kept to just to keep our sanity we also have a senate list and we've been paring that one down dramatically um, because um, a lot of candidates are either sending signals behind the scenes or saying publicly they're they're not going to run and really the, that universe of of likely candidates is is very is, is very small now not just Ozov, michelle nunn hasn't ruled it out quite yet she ran in 2014 but that's still unlikely reverend Raphael warnock hasn't at least to my knowledge, ruled it out publicly yet, but I'm hearing behind the scenes that he has. So uh, th- there's not that many candidates who are potential potentially running, and there's some frustration. And and and, the, and Teresa Tomlinson and Sarah Riggs and Miko know this. There's some frustration from Democrats that you know a higher profile candidate didn't run, that a Sally Yates, that a Stacey Abrams isn't running because um, certainly if if either of those two uh, ran, it would be a lot easier for them to raise money. Um, they have a huge name recognition. They have a national appeal. Um, and so it's going to be a lot more work for someone like Teresa Tomlinson or Sarah Riggs Amigo to build it up. I'm not saying they can't. They just have a lot more groundwork to do to do so. And that's why it's so interesting that that those candidates who are considering Senate races are not jumping in faster, you know, whereas in the 7th, they really are. You know, it's it's one thing to run in a place like the 7th where you're talking about portions of two counties, Gwinnett and, and Forsyth. It's easier to build up name recognition in such a small district. But when we're talking about the entire state, a race that's going to command millions of dollars, um, you know, in, in fundraising and outside advertising. David Perdue has a huge network that includes the president of the United States and his first cousin, a former governor and the secretary of agriculture. If you're a Democrat and you you want to seriously compete with that, you're going to have to spend a lot of time getting your name out there. Um, Sarah Riggs Amico was an unknown before she ran for a political unknown before she ran for, for lieutenant mm-hmm. governor last year. And, and she had Stacey Abrams to kind of help with that. And, and, you know, she's going to run on her own. It's going to take time. Same with Teresa Tomlinson. You know, she's very well known in Columbus, where she served as mayor for two terms. But building name recognition in a giant state like Georgia is going to take a lot of time and getting to know donors, not only in Georgia, but places like California and New York and Illinois and Virginia, places where there's a lot of political money is also going to take time. And neither of those races that they that both those candidates ran and got got any sort of you know major media attention. I mean the 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 Metro Atlanta media market you know didn't barely covered the, the Columbus what happens in Columbus, let alone uh, the national media. And then of course even the lieutenant governor's race, um, as important as that job is, got a fraction of attention of of the governor's race. Um, and, and, and part of it's. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to translate to readers what a lieutenant governor does, which is preside over the state Senate and help sort of shepherd legislation through and, and is the sort of the governor's number two. Um, a lot of people, it's easier to say what a governor does. It's, it's hard to get people energized and engaged in the lieutenant governor's race. And um, and Amico um, and Jeff Duncan, the Republican who ended up winning, they campaigned, but they campaigned hard and, and traveled the state and were, were seemingly everywhere. Um, but all the attention goes to the top of the ticket. Second thing is the money aspect. The governor's race, Kemp raised about twenty-ish million dollars. Abrams raised all told about thirty-ish million dollars, um, fifty million dollars combined. That's not including the outside money. A huge amount of money, the most money ever, all told, with all the candidates the governor's race has ever raised. Well, the Senate race is probably about to shatter all that. Um, in term, even though there's fewer candidates, because. Uh, um, 
Teresa Tomlinson said she's a, she has to raise at least 20 million bucks just to like, you know, just as starters. Uh, David Perdue has all those ties you, you mentioned with, with, with President Trump and, and Republican leadership. And of course, a lot of deep pocket donors here in Georgia. I mean, you, you could see him raise well past $30 million. Who knows? But they're going to raise a lot of money and there'll be a ton of national attention on this race because the road to Senate control uh, next year runs through Georgia. Exactly. And, and you know, it's, it's possible that we also see the president spend time here in Georgia as well. He, he really did not spend time after he got the, the Republican nomination. But I was just at a meeting with, with Trump's super PAC, the outside organization that's kind of going to support him. And uh, officials there were, were talking about how they see Georgia as kind of a frontline state, you know, 16 electoral votes. That's nothing to, um, to scoff at. And so they're going to be spending money in Georgia to make sure that it is is, it is safe for President Trump. And not only that, but that, that will help translate for David Perdue. And that's something that he talks about all the time, how he sees his reelection being very closely tied with the president. So if you're a Democrat running against that, you you need to get a, a leg up and you need to start working now. You need to start working yesterday to um, to get your name out. We talked about this last week too, but you're right. I mean, and there's a reason why we've seen most presidential candidates come to Georgia so far, this far in advance. We talked about how early it is in the, in the 2016 campaign by like late 2015, we had seen most of the candidates, but a lot of them came in November and December and certainly right before the, uh, the, the primary, um, which, uh, was held in early March, if I remember correctly. Um, but this time around, we're seeing them come more earlier and more often than ever before. And that's partly because there's more of them. But still, I mean, the, the Democratic frontrunner, so to speak, Joe Biden came to, to Georgia in June. Um, and you've and by then you'd already had more than a dozen other visits from 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 different candidates. And that's only going to ramp up. President Trump visited right before the primary and you know, hired staffers in Georgia and had operations in Georgia, but did, neither campaign, neither Hillary Clinton nor President Trump spent significant resources in Georgia because it was seen as a, as a Republican, solidly Republican territory. That's all changed. Well, let's talk about Stacey Abrams because you mentioned her earlier. And she, even though um, she lost last year's gubernatorial race um, and she's passed on a Senate race, she is still the foremost Democrat in Georgia. And um, we had the chance to tag along as she went to Hollywood uh, to talk about another piece of legislation we've talked an awful lot about, the, the heartbeat bill. Uh, those abortion restrictions we mentioned were playing such a big role or going to play such a big role in the 7th. Well, um, Brian Kemp in the state usually go on a trip to Hollywood to court studio executives, remind them of how much Georgia appreciates all their, <laughs> their spending and attention. That trip was postponed Early this year, amid all this talk of protests and no-shows because of the heartbeat bill, Stacey Abrams decided to go in his, almost not really in his stead, but uh, she was decided to go to highlight the problems uh, that Hollywood has with that heartbeat bill. Yeah, and, and you were with her in Hollywood and, and chatted with her after after her big meeting to kind of quell the nerves of a lot of folks who who've been threatening boycotts or leaving the state. And and her message, you you said was was you know hold your horses, wait a little bit. This is it could take a while. Not only is this measure not going to be implemented until January, it will almost certainly be stayed in in court, and it could take a long time. And and wait until twenty twenty, wait until twenty twenty two, the next gubernatorial race to see who wins. Basically, 
Mm-hmm. To me, I mean, not that it's too much of a surprise to anyone watching Georgia politics, but to me, those were some of the most um, concrete comments signaling that she she's good. If she's not uh, in the talks to be a vice presidential nominee at this time next year, or maybe a cabinet appointment if a Democratic president wins, that she is certainly going to run for for um, for governor against for a rematch against Governor Kemp in 2022. Of course, she didn't say that, but she was talking about her message to to these and it wasn't just studio executives there were there were producers directors behind the scenes people caterers um uh film production analysts a lot of people at this at this meeting we weren't we, we weren't allowed access to it but we got a kind of rundown of it from from stacy abrams and her, and her top aide lauren Grow-Wargo afterwards um and her message to them is yeah hold your horses this is going to be a years-long court battle and by the by, the time that it could be decided, Georgia could have an entirely new political dynamic. I mean, next year, uh, we always talk about the sixth and seventh district and in the Senate race, but the other big battle up is control of the Georgia House because Democrats need they're about fifteen seats shy of a majority there, and they can flip a handful of suburban seats they think are the juiciest targets, but. Yeah, there's going to be some really uh, interesting races, and if the if the Democrats take back the House, then you have talk about legislative gridlock and and some more negotiations, and who knows? I mean, that's that's down the road. But she's saying the political dynamic could change next year in Georgia, and certainly in 2022. So she was strongly alluding to to a run, and she was telling people um, not to not to so like basically freak out. Um, she didn't convince them all. There was the the mood was. She said it was very collegial and, and, and everyone came willing to listen, but that it was it got tense, that there were some people who were demanding, challenging her, why aren't you joining this this boycott movement? Um, she's someone who's always talked about the, the importance of boycotts and protests and, and speaking with your, with your dollars uh, and sending a message. And so people were, were asking her why she's not you know, living up to that herself when it comes to this. And, and her, her message was stay in fight that a boycott will only backfire and only end up doing more harm uh, to, 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 to the causes that they want to further in Georgia. What was so striking is, you know, she's, she's going to, to California and almost acting kind of like a, a shadow governor, depend, defending a, um, you know, a series of tax credits that was put into law by by a bunch of Republican governors and and urging the, this huge industry in the state to to stay put. One part of your story that that really struck me is you you spoke with a, a film writer for for Variety magazine, kind of a, a trade publication out there in Hollywood, and he talked about how even if the the industry does decide to start boycotting mm-hmm. Georgia and pull out their their resources, it's going to be a really hard thing to do. The whole industry has spent billions of dollars over the last 15 years or so since Sonny Purdue signed those tax credits into law, building an infrastructure on the ground in Georgia. There are things like sound stages, educational programs, um, a whole network of, mm-hmm. of infrastructure that's been built down there. And it's going to be really hard to walk away from a lot of that. Yeah. The interesting thing is Georgia kind of learned from the other states that had come before it in, in, in that were Hollywood's sort of darlings of the moment. States like Louisiana and North Carolina that also had really generous tax credits. Um, but, you know, the, the environment changed. They either they either weakened their tax credits or, uh, or political leadership changed or other states swooped in with even more generous incentives. And they lost, you know, the industry at the drop of a hat. It seemed like a drop of a hat. So Georgia came in and uh, started with Sonny Purdue more than almost 15 years ago when the first 
version of the tax credit passed and said their mission was really to build an infrastructure that would make it a lot harder for Hollywood to leave. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, there's tens of millions of dollars in investments in the actual physical structures that, you know, it's one thing for, for, you know, a a key grip, a lighting professional um, actors, producers who live in Hollywood anyway, to just say, okay, we're going to go instead to Vancouver or we're going to shoot in New York or we're going to stay in LA and shoot. It's another thing to try to uproot the actual network of infrastructure, mostly in Metro Atlanta. That's not easy. So all these studios that are saying, um, that they're having that they could have second thoughts and all these studios by the way gave themselves some room to maneuver because most of them are saying not that we're going to leave georgia because because governor kemp signed the heartbeat law bill into law but they're saying that if it takes effect they might rethink their investment in georgia and that's that's asking a lot too because with the legal battle certain there's going to be a, a lawsuit filed later this summer we're told um definitively um, that there's no there's no uh, guarantee that this law will ever take effect. So there's some wiggle room there. Um, there's the, and there and there's a, there's the case that Stacey Abrams has been making, which is the stay and fight movement, which is uh, don't leave, instead stay, donate to candidates who who support your values, and donate to groups, including her own group, Fair Fight Action, that supports your values. Um, so. We'll see how that plays out. At the same time, Governor Kemp, um, I had a, I had an extensive interview with him on the subject um, right before I left for for Hollywood, and he said, "Look, they're saying one thing, but I'm hearing from people on the ground here in Georgia that they're quite happy with the way things are going, and that he's fighting for Georgia values, not Hollywood values." And Stacey Abrams can go to L.A. She's he kind of made a, a knock on her. He said she spent plenty of time there before. But he has to focus on his job in Georgia. Yeah, and some pretty striking numbers in your story, too, just about the um, footprint that the film industry has in the state right now. Um, you mentioned how direct film spending reached $2.7 billion last year. Um, and there are about 450 projects that were, were shot in the state, and it supported about 92,000 jobs. So we're not just talking about a few projects here. This could have a huge impact. And, and something I think we should be watching for going forward is is kind of the, the medium term and long-term planning from some of these studios. Um, you know, what are they, you know, as they map out their investments for the next three, four, five, ten 10 years, do, is Georgia a part of those plans or do we see them gradually st- start to shift projects elsewhere? And what we're always also looking out for is look, Hollywood is flashy. It gets a lot of attention. It gets as the celebrities, it's easy to write about for journalists, but is this, is this affecting other industries? And so far we haven't really seen that. Um, Stacey Abrams said it was the tip of the spear and that she's worried that it could it could start cascading into other industries like the tech industry. Um, but me and Scott Truby did a story um, a couple of days ago where we polled again. We've done this before, but we again, now that the bill has passed, we did it before the bill passed. Now that the bill is signed into law, we polled the major Fortune 500 companies that had chimed in on other Georgia legislation like the Religious Liberty Bill and asked them their thoughts on... Um, on the heartbeat legislation, and we talked to a few of those CEOs who, who the Delta CEO, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially said, look, my job is not to, not to worry about Georgia's uh, political debates. My job is to be the best airline CEO I can be. The, the CEO for what, what was soon as formerly known as SunTrust said something of the same thing, that he has to focus on his customers and the bank environment 
and and not abortion related legislation and other companies kind of sidestep the debate um so it'll be it'll be interesting to see whether or not other industries have followed because as important as the hollywood industry is and the 92,000 jobs it supports you know you talk about the other major sectors in georgia's economy agriculture tourism the, the financial services industry, all those industries to see if there's the tech industry um, watching to see if there is any pronounced fallout. There might be a tidbits here and there, but any pronounced fallout from, from, from this legislation there. Exactly. And we hinted at this in our abortion politics story about how the issue was impacting congressional and legislative races. Abortion is kind of a fundamentally different issue from religious liberty, which which goes into LGBT rights and civil, civil liberties and, and all that stuff. You know, a lot of these Fortune 500 companies have clauses in their code of ethics um, or not code of ethics, but their kind of mantras as corporations saying they're not going to discriminate against people, um, you know, and and attitudes towards the LGBT community are, are changing very rapidly across the country. That's one thing. But abortion is an issue that's so personal and sensitive and deeply held among the population. It's it's really hard to change people's minds on that. And I think a lot of these huge companies are, are very much aware of that and they really don't want to step into such an emotional debate. Well, tomorrow, thanks for joining me. I have a feeling this will not be the last time we talk about these issues this campaign season. For sure. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.